Heavenly Father, your word says that the unfolding of your word gives light. And we pray that that would be true of us this lunchtime, that you would shed light on the truth about us, the truth about you, the truth about the world, and ultimately the truth about your son. So we ask this in his name. Amen. A couple of years back, a BBC TV show ran a feature with a group of impersonators for the singer Adele. Adele is an iconic figure, and these people were trying to capture her appearance and her presence, as well as her remarkable voice. You see these impersonators mingling and talking with one another about Adele, and then you see them on stage auditioning one by one as they sing her songs. As one of the women starts to sing, you can see in the others, slowly but unmistakably, their eyes beginning to widen, their jaws beginning to drop as they realize that she is no impersonator. It is Adele herself. As she'd been among them, she'd been talking with them, seemingly one of them, yet the moment of truth arrives and they see her for who she really is. It begins to make sense of what they've seen and heard as they've been talking with her. Now that is a primetime TV prank and it is very entertaining. But where we've come to in our journey in Mark's gospel is a similar moment of truth. And yet this is one that is much more spiritually significant. Today really is a summary of where we've been these past several weeks as we see who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and we see quite clearly what it looks like to follow Jesus. As we'll see, it's a moment of truth that reveals what we've been hearing about all along. Mark is a great storyteller, and he introduces what follows with a story about blindness. So I want to start by reading from Mark chapter 8 and verses 22 to 25. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. As always with Jesus, uh, when he meets this man who is in real need, he responds by helping him. But as always with Jesus, he doesn't miss the opportunity to teach a significant lesson at the same time. By performing this miracle, Jesus reminds us of his unique claim to be God in the flesh. He does what only God can do. He's the one who can still a storm with a word. He's the one who can cast out demons who are oppressing people. 
He was the one who can restore to health those who have all kinds of illnesses, even restore life to one who had died. And in it all, Jesus claims he is able to forgive sin. But this miracle here is unusual because it happens in two stages. This man's sight is partially restored before this man is then able to see clearly. Jesus is showing what it is like to see him for who he really is. Many have only a partial sight of him at first, but then their eyes are opened, so to speak, and they see him clearly. And that's why Mark immediately goes on to tell us this from verse uh, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. People have all sorts of views of Jesus today, don't they? Just as they did back then. Some people say that Jesus was a wise man. Now, this view of Jesus sees a man who gives out good advice, which we might choose to listen to if we happen to agree with him. And we might choose to disregard if we happen not to agree with him. Or or others say that Jesus was an influential leader. This view of Jesus sees that he had quite a following in his day, but it stops short of responding to his call to follow him wherever he leads. Maybe to follow him in some areas of life but not in all, to listen to some of what he says, but not all of it. But Jesus won't let us settle for half-baked ideas about who he is. He certainly won't let us keep our, our view of him theoretical. He challenges us much more directly than that. And Jesus asks Peter, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And it gets personal for us, too, as we hear that same question, because Jesus isn't content to leave us with misapprehensions about him. He's determined that we might see clearly so that we can trust him completely. It looks as if Peter's got the message at this point. Uh, He says, you are the Messiah. But what happens next shows that he has only seen partially, not fully, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. So Jesus goes on to correct his vision. Uh, Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. This is what Jesus came to do. In fact, Jesus says this is what he had to do 
The only way for sinful people to be brought back into a right relationship with God is if the punishment for sin is dealt with. Jesus came in order to die the death that we deserved and then be raised to new life so that our sin could die with him and that we could have the new life that he invites us and draws us into. He came on a rescue mission, but for him, it meant going the way of the cross. And this is a crunch moment for Peter. And it's a crunch moment for us. Does this, quest, does this message sound like good news to you? If you're conscious of your sin and, and if you're convicted of it, then this is the great promise that God has done in history what you could not do for yourself. He sent a saviour for your sins. It will be for you the best news you have ever heard. But if not, it sounds like weakness and foolishness even. And you'll respond by dismissing it. Now that's Peter's gut instinct in verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus has some strong words for Peter in response to his attitude. And it's a challenge that we need to hear. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus came to turn the world upside down. And if we're going to see things clearly, if we're going to see things from a God's eye perspective, then it will challenge our human view of what's going on with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. It will seem like nonsense to us that Jesus chose to go the way of the cross. But from his point of view, is very different. He wasn't looking out for his own interests. His self-sacrifice was his means of winning salvation for us. Uh, there is more though, there's more because Jesus goes on to show that seeing things clearly doesn't just involve knowing who Jesus is. It isn't just about understanding why Jesus came. It is also about knowing what it means to follow him. As Jesus calls people to follow him, he, he calls them to follow him in denying themselves and taking up their cross. That's how he goes on from verse 34. Then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul. 
Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed with them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Taking up your cross might be a figure of speech for us today, but it was a powerful image for the people of Jesus' day. They knew what it was like. They'd seen it up close and personal. As criminals were led to their deaths by execution, they were forced to carry the crossbeam. It was a burden. It was designed to be a public spectacle. It was designed to make crucifixion a particularly shameful form of execution. And it is striking then that Jesus uses this image to describe what following him is going to look like and feel like. It is to deny oneself. It is to die to oneself and perhaps to face shame, ridicule and rejection for it. The Christian pastor and writer Sam Albury says this. He said, discipleship is the difference between being a fan and being a Christian. It's easy to respect Jesus, even to revere him, but Christians follow him. And Jesus doesn't pretend that it'll always be easy. It may cost us in different areas of life, our relationships, our careers, our comfort. In some parts of the world, it may literally cost us our lives. Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world today. Yet the message of the Christian gospel and the shape of the Christian life is that dying to yourself by following Jesus brings you life in all of its fullness. It is good news and there is great joy in following Jesus because Jesus never calls us to go somewhere that he hasn't first gone, never calls us to do something that he hasn't first done for us. Because he's gone through death and into life. It means the outcome is secure for us if we trust in him. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Authority over life and death. Authority over us, ourselves. If we try to save ourselves by rejecting Jesus, he will confirm our choices. But if we hang on to him and follow him, he will bring us into life. And to put it another way, Jesus wants us to know that we can trust our whole lives, even our deaths, into his hands. And that's what we see in the final scene of this little part of Mark's gospel. I'm going to read from Mark 9 and verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son 
whom I love, listen to him. Here then is that moment of sight that we've been building towards. The the blurry, partial blindness that we saw in the man that Jesus healed has characterized Jesus' disciples' view of him in their spiritual sight. They've begun to see some things about Jesus, uh, but have not until now seen him for who he truly is. But then the veil is lifted, so to speak. They see he's no impersonator or charlatan. He is the real thing. God in the flesh, sent to save them from sin and lovingly inviting them to trust in him and to follow him. What they've seen and heard from Jesus is confirmed from the voice of God himself from heaven. This is my son whom I love. And then God says, listen to him. So we're left with three questions about Jesus that we must face up to and answer. Who is Jesus? Is he just a good man who had some good ideas, but about whom we can remain indifferent? Or is he the Messiah, the Son of God? Why did Jesus come? Did his plan go wrong when he died on the cross? Was it just a tragic waste of a young life? Or was it a rescue, a ransom for many? And what does it mean to follow Jesus? Is it to take his words as good advice and go some of where he calls sometimes? Or is it to trust his words completely and to depend on him fully and to follow him where he calls in every area of life? He is calling you to come and die so that you might live in him. So really the question that I must leave you with is this. How will you respond to that call? Let's 